You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we've been working our way through this relatively slowly. If you would, uh, if you're able to stand with me, let's, let's honor the reading of Scripture together as we read through this portion of, of Scripture. We're going to focus our attention this morning on verses 7 and 8. So as we're reading, let your eyes be, be drawn to, to that, those verses in the midst of uh, the context. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man... Be born when he is old. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except, that, except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask that you guide us as we work our way through this conversation. As we talk about your your spirit this morning and how you work in our lives. 
Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to, to comprehend and understand. Lead us to truth. Help us avoid error. Lord, I, I pray that the name of Jesus would be glorified and exalted here this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been working our way through this, this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. We've been working through it relatively slow. And the reason for that is it's because it's such an important conversation. Jesus is, is introducing Nicodemus to the idea of new birth. And, and we recognize that what Jesus said here is really foreign to the ears of the, the Pharisee. He's not grasping these things. He keeps asking questions. And it's not making sense to him. In verse 10, Jesus even chides him a little bit and says, are you not the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? You know, if the, the teacher of Israel didn't understand these things, I, I think that means that we should take our time to make sure that we grasp these things. In our text this morning, in verses 7 and 8, we come to, the, to what is really the, the third reference to the Holy Spirit in just a, a matter of verses here. In verse 5, Nicodemus, uh, in, in verse 5, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the new birth takes place of the water and the Spirit meaning that spiritual life is produced in individuals when the Spirit of God implants the seed of, of God's Word in their heart. And then in verse 6, last time, the flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. In our, in our focus there, when, when we talked about it, was really on the, the flesh, wasn't it? How the fleshly nature was to be overcome, that it's still in us, and it's still uh, producing that, that struggle in the life of the, of the Christian. And now as we get to verses 7 and 8, we notice that they deal with the, the Holy Spirit. So as we seek to, to grasp this text, we need to thinking about who the Spirit is and, and what is His activity and how it personally affects us, how uh, it affects us. So when you think about the, the Holy Spirit, let me ask you this. What do you think about? In, in fact, when I, when I ask that, that question, I say, you know, when you think about the Holy Spirit, what do you think about Him? So I, I, you can make an assumption just in the, in the question that you understand the, the Holy Spirit to be a, a person. But that might not be true for some. They might understand the Holy Spirit to be a, a, a more of a source than a person. Maybe it's a personal force or an impersonal force. Of course, there's, there's something mysterious about the Holy Spirit. I think the, the mysterious nature here is, is really illustrated in our day by the, the more radical charismatic groups who, who seem to, to seek from the Holy Spirit grand experiences and, and grand manifestation. And the, the grander and the more mysterious the manifestation, the more the Holy Spirit is involved. 
It reduces the Holy Spirit to an impersonal force that, that moves among people. So what does that say about the person of the Holy Spirit? And how does that shape our understanding of these things? When we talk about the Spirit's role in our lives. And specifically, how do those things shape when we, what we think about the Holy Spirit? How does that shape the Spirit's role in the, the new birth, in regeneration, in being born again, which is the, the context here in, in this passage in which Jesus just referred to the Holy Spirit three times in just a matter of verses. I think at this point, it's helpful if we kind of just back up and, and take a look at this word spirit itself for a moment. We need to define the word. Have you ever wondered, for instance, why some people speak of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost? We saw that in our, in our video this morning. One reason why uh, I chose that one, because uh, there was a, a number of times there you know, once in a while in, in hymns, when we read things in the old King James Version, for instance, we, we hear of, of the Holy Ghost. And for us, the word ghost has quite a different meaning than the word spirit. And it's almost sometimes strange to use that word. But yet, us knowing that it was more common at a different time is it, helpful but it's still confusing. So the reason for that is that the English language, like unlike other European languages, is a, a fusion between two language groups. One is, is more uh, Germanic in origin and the other is, is Latin in origin. So before 1066, that's the year that William the, William the Norman conquered England. The English language, or the, the language that was spoken in English was Anglo-Saxon, and it existed in a, a number of different dialects, but it was all Germanic in, in origin. And there, there might have been different pronunciations of, of words, but they were still the, the same word was used for an object. For instance, an, an ox was an ox. It might have been pronounced differently in different places and in, in different times there, in different dialects, but the word was the same. The word brother was the word brother, for instance. There was one word, but after 1066, these things changed because a whole new vocabulary was introduced to England because the, the Normans were the, the ruling class and they spoke French. So... What happened then was now there are two words used for most objects as the, the languages merged to form the English language. Both words then were preserved in, in many cases. So we still have the Anglo-Saxon word ox, but we also have the word beef, which is based on the French. And originally the, the two words were identical. They just come from two different language groups. The word brother is Germanic in origin, but we also have uh, words that, that come from uh, the French, fraternize, fraternal, fraternity. Uh, these words are, are based on the, the French equivalent to the Germanic word brother. And even though we don't use the same word, we still have that equivalent in our language and we use them in certain instances. So ox and beef at one point were synonymous and as the English language evolved, they've, they've taken on some distinct meanings to some degree. And this same thing has taken place with many 
uh, many biblical and theological words as well. For instance, the term uh, saint and holy fall into this category. Their root words were identical words. For instance, in the German Bible, the cover would read in German, the Holy Bible. If you were to look at the, the Gospels in the German Bible, you would see Holy Matthew, Holy Mark, and so on. The French call their Bible, in, in French, the, the Saint Bible. And their Gospels are Saint Luke and Saint John and, and so on. So we have in our Bibles today, on the cover it says the Holy Bible. And then when you go to the, and then, you know, that's the Germanic origin. And then when you go to the, the authors, then you have Saint Luke, Saint Mark, Saint John, and that would come from the French. So we just note that really those, come, those came from the, the same words at one time. They were identical in their root. So you can probably see where I'm going here. This is the same for the word spirit and, and ghost. Of course, the words that, that we have now are carry different meanings after uh, 900 years or so of being used in the English language. The, the word ghost today is a, a reference to a spirit of a dead person supposedly returning to, to, to haunt them or to haunt people or places. I remember having conversations when I was a, a kid with, with friends and that question coming up, right? Do you believe in ghosts? And when you heard that question, you weren't thinking about the language of the Apostles' Creed or uh, the doxology. You were thinking about ghosts that return to haunt people. So I, I think... Um, you know, I, so I, I think this helps when we speak of the Holy Ghost. I think it helps us to understand the, the origin of the words a little bit and how there was a, a time in which both of those words were identical. It helps us to understand why we, we say them sometimes and how it is uh, very uh, appropriate. But still, we need to ask the question, what is meant by those terms in the Scripture? In other words, what is, what is the Spirit? Of course, when we see the word spirit with a, a capital S or the word holy in front of it, we understand that it's a reference to the third person of the Trinity. It's God himself. On the other hand, the, the spirit, small s, is part of a, a person's makeup. But there are some things beyond this that we need to consider. For instance, in the Latin where we get our word spirit, it's from the word spiritus, which means breath. Now we have English words that, that come from this, like aspire, conspire, inspire, prespire, expire. And the, the interesting thing is that all of these words have at their meaning, in, in some sense, the idea of breath. So when people aspire, they take a deep breath and they try harder. When people conspire, they put their heads together and they breathe in and out with one another. When a person is inspired, another blows some of their breath onto them. When you prespire, 
you breathe out through your skin. And eventually, all of us will expire when we breathe out for the last time. So, now it kind of it kind of makes sense when we get back to our text as to why Jesus spoke of the of the wind when he was trying to help Nicodemus understand something of the Holy Spirit, since the wind is a really good symbol of God's breath. Jesus spoke of, of wind going where it wishes, just as God's allowed his breath or his spirit to go where he wished to produce the effects that he desired it to produce. Now, we've been talking about English words for the word spirit. We said that we got our word spirit from, from Latin. And now there was a, there's a little bit of confusion. There was a little bit of confusion there between spirit and, and ghost and how the, the Latin word spirit carried that idea of, of breath. And I think all of that is helpful. But at the same time, I, I want to offer a, a little bit of, of caution here. Um, let me illustrate it a little bit if I can. There, there was a clip that went viral on the internet not, not long ago of a, a woman that said that she uh, had been studying the, the original languages. And <clears throat> she even got into some of the, the words that were translated as, as homosexual or homosexuality in the scriptures. And her point was that those words, the word homosexual, wasn't in the scriptures. But that word in the, in the, wasn't there in the Hebrew. It wasn't there in the, in the Greek translation. There's, there's no translation of our word homosexual. So, for instance, in Romans 1, where we read that word, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, the fact is, and we've seen a lot of this lately, that people are, are looking at the original language saying that actually that word isn't there. But the question isn't if the word is, is there or not, because the, the word homosexual hadn't been coined yet. So it, of course it's not there. There's not, there's not going to be a translation of that word. You can't have a translation of a word that wasn't around yet. So there's, there's no direct translation. The question is, is the language that is used in the Old and New Testaments describing what we mean by that term that had been coined since? Is it a good translation based on what Moses or, or Paul was teaching? Is this what he is describing? Is this what he is meaning? I just bring this up here because what we've been doing is defining other words. We've, been, we've actually started with the translation and then are, are moving our way back through history uh, to, the, to the Bible. And we haven't even got to the, to the Greek words and what they mean or the, the Hebrew word and, and what that means for spirit. But we need to. The, the word uh, in, in Greek for spirit is, is pneuma. And the, the reason that I brought up the, the Latin first is because just by the word pneuma, you can, you can kind of catch that idea of, of breath in there, can't you? In fact, we don't have a lot of English words that use that, but we do have some. Um, pneumatic. Um, Pneumonia, I couldn't think of the, the word. Um, so pneumatic runs by air, uh, pneumonia. Um, so it, 
it's kind of the same thing. So the question is, is this a good translation? So in, in English, we have words based on the, the Greek word pneuma. So just as the, the Latin and the, and the Greek words both refer to, to breath, and that's the idea of the word spirit, so does the, the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is, is ruach. You, know, you can't even say the word without uh, the sound of breath coming through. And I think that when we understand this, we catch some of the, the beauty of the opening verses of, of Genesis, where the, the spirit of, of God is, is, is blowing uh, over the, the waters. And the fact that the English translation, you, you can't capture that idea, that idea of, of God's breath of God breathing his creative breath or spirit over the world and the idea of, of wind that is involved there. For us, these are two distinct things. We don't associate one with the other. But that's not how it is in scriptures. So let's take what we know here so far, the basic sense of the word of, of spirit here, and, and try to try to apply it to our text a little bit and ask how this helps us to understand what Jesus is saying. To, to make things simple at this point, I, I think what this means is that one can be born again only as a result of God breathing new life into them. This is the, the first truth that we see. And think about that for a moment. No person is born again apart from God's Holy Spirit, something that has been made very clear in the text up until now, especially in verse 6. What is born of the Spirit is spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. The sole author of one's new birth is God alone. The second thing here is that this never happens uh, solely by a person's self-determination or their own will. But it happens according to the good pleasure of God alone. So it is with the Spirit. It blows where God wishes. It isn't controlled or manipulated by anyone or anything. Isn't that the meaning here? Isn't that the, the point that God is, that Jesus is trying to make to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, the Spirit cannot be manipulated. It goes where he wants it to go. It accomplishes the purpose that he wants it to accomplish. Don't you find it interesting that the teaching here, the teaching of, of God's Spirit is, is directly tied to the doctrine of God's sovereignty? It's as if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you can even be the teacher of Israel. You can have a, a sought-after position. You can have um, this great teaching ability. You can know the scriptures. You can apply the, the, the moral imperatives to your life the best that you know how. You can, you can be a, a great example of holiness to other people. You can desire, every, desire that everyone follow your example because you're such a, a good example of these things. You can have all these things and more, but you cannot be born again without the Holy Spirit, without God himself breathing the breath of life into you. I don't know, maybe some of this sounds a little bit strange to us. There is such a, an emphasis today put on human effort in the church. Uh, 
on being moral, on uh, applying uh, truths before we even understand them. And we ask, well, this can't be right because how do you, how do you apply this? <laughs> there's, there's no way to apply what, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. If this is what Jesus is saying, that the Spirit of God cannot be manipulated. You cannot do these things. You can have all of this, but you cannot be born again unless God takes not only the initiative, but the sovereign act of, of breathing life into you to, to create a, a new birth. Then how are we supposed to do anything? How are we supposed to uh, apply something that we cannot do? You know, if the subject at hand is obtaining eternal life, which it is here, then if we try to apply that, the application would be that there's something that I can do to achieve that. But here Nicodemus, or Jesus is clearly telling Nicodemus, no, this is the, the Holy Spirit's department. What is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must have life breathed into you just as the wind blows where it wishes. So everyone born of the Spirit has life breathed into them by the Spirit of God. And it might seem strange, but what I want to make the case is that this is how it has been for everyone. that has been born again, whether they realize it or not. Just go all the way back to, to Abraham for a moment. The, of course, Abraham is the one that God used to bring about uh, the, the great nation, a nation that would be used to, to bring about uh, the Messiah. He was pivotal in God's plan of redemption. And the question is, is why Abraham? Was it because Abraham was starting for himself a new nation and God said, well, I'll just use this one? Is it that Abraham was left on his own and God said, I'll start him was it that he was a, a God-fearer and God saw something in him that he was going to, to use, that he, could, that he could use to, to create this great nation? And the answer to all of those questions is no. We know this because later on in, in Joshua, before Joshua's death, Joshua charged the people of Israel to, make, to remain true to God. And he does this by reminding them of their past and how they had nothing to do with how they've gotten where they were. Just listen to this. Joshua chapter 24. And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Tetra, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, it's an important statement, and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And I gave him Isaac. And a few verses later, now therefore fear the God and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away, that you're, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. In other words, these verses indicate that Abraham was a, a worshiper of, of other gods like the people that were around him that lived beyond the river. And God took him out of that and he moved in his life. The Spirit of God produced in him life. And this was a, a movement of God's amazing grace in the life of Abraham. I think there's, there's something here that we should see as well. 
And that, of, and that is, and we're reminded of this in Joshua 24, it's that God did these things. And we look back and say, look, look where I was. You know, when we, when we look back, do we look back and say, man, I was, in, I was in such a heap, and then with God's help, I was reborn. We look back and see how undeserving we were of what God did. The wind of God blew breath into our life and produced life when we deserved nothing. One author pointed out, and I agreed with this, it's so helpful that at the time of Jesus, a Jew would have believed, and rightly so, that the Messiah was the the culmination of God's blessing on the, the Jewish people. It was a fulfillment of Israel's hope. But the God who knows all things and in all wisdom chose to, to pave a way that not only would the Messiah be Israel's hope, but it would be hope of millions upon millions of Gentiles as well. People didn't think that way. People didn't understand it this way. It was beyond the realm of understanding of many, but yet this was the plan of God, and this is what God did because the Spirit of God moved. The Spirit of God moves the way God wants the Spirit of God to move and accomplishes the purpose that God wants to accomplish. The church in our day is in a state of decline, and and it has been for some time, and I'm not even speaking about COVID. But understand when I say that the church here, and I'm talking about organized churches in America, just people that meet under the heading of church in America. So I'm including many mainline churches and denominations here as well. And again, there's, there's no surprise to you that the church is in a, a, a perpetual state of decline. You, you know this, right? Survey after survey says this in, in various ways. But the truth here is that there are exceptions to this, and the exceptions lie when in churches where the, the gospel is being preached in, in purity and the authority is given to the scriptures alone. There are churches that are not declining. This is true, and this shouldn't surprise us either, because Jesus said very clearly that the gates of hell would not prevail against the, the church. But this doesn't change the fact that not only is there a decline in the impact of organized churches in America, this is also a time in which there's a lot of effort being put into church in America to make them seem relevant. And I think the question here is, is can we, as, as we see the decline in organized church in America, can we breathe new life into the church? And the answer is God does that. And we know from what we've already studied that the Spirit of God works with the Word. So there is this trend, but then in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this trend, right in the midst of a great decline in the, in the church, we see instances of numbers of, of people coming to faith as, as God breathes on the church, and we can't explain it. 
was this moments of, of revival in college campuses, for instance. There was an Episcopal bishop by the name of James Pike. James Pike got famous because um, for a couple different things. One, he had some controversial opinions and for the fact that he started denying some crucial uh, doctrines of the church later on. Uh, he started out as a lawyer. He became the, the bishop of the Episcopal Church in uh, 1958. He got together with some of the leadership of the United Presbyterian Church. Um, at that time, these two men got together. They, they worked on and proposed a, a gigantic merger of Protestant denominations. What they were proposing was one of the, the biggest ecumenical things they, they could imagine. And, of course, it, it didn't happen. And Pike's fame at this time came along with the fact that he started increasingly denying biblical doctrines. Um, this was a, a great embarrassment to the Episcopal Church. Uh, it led to charges of heresy being filed against him. Uh, personally, his life didn't get, wasn't much better. He was, uh, he was drinking. He had to join Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, he had been married three times. The first one, he got annulled. The second one ended in divorce. Uh, but he had four children. One of those children committed suicide. And Pike then... Uh, was such a place in his life where he went to visit a, a medium in Philadelphia and contacted his, his departed son, supposedly. Pike then left the church. He died alone in 1969 in a Judean desert while researching a book on the historical Jesus. At the end of his life, he was searching for Jesus. Tragic story. Here's a guy that was involved in unifying churches and a great ecumenical movement, something that was seen by, uh, as a great thing by many. I don't think it was wise. I don't think it was wise then or today. But you can see why people thought well of Pike. They believed that he was doing the work of God, but then his life was a, a wreck, both personally and spiritually. The interesting thing about Pike's legacy is that one of the leaders of the Jesus movement in the 70s was Christopher Pike. Another one of James Pike's sons. His story is told by a guy by the name of Ed Plowman in a book about the Jesus movement. Christopher Pike was a, a troubled teenager, as you can imagine, just knowing a little bit of his home life. When he was 15, he was introduced to, to marijuana. And the, a year later, in 67, was the year his parents divorced. His, his dad was doing experiments with psychics and mediums. Uh, a friend gave him LSD to try at that time. He got into to yoga. He said he felt like he was always being confronted by an evil spirit or force that wanted his soul. One day... He went to the University of California at Berkeley, and there he, he heard a testimony of a, of a converted hippie by the name of Ted Wise. And this got Christopher thinking. In 70, he began reading the New Testament, and when he read the New Testament, he found out what his father had missed his entire life. He found the real Jesus, the one that his father was still searching for when he died. 
And it was at this time that, that he got down to his knees and he poured out all his, his loneliness, his frustration, his disappointment that had piled up inside him for years and he believed in Jesus. He received the Lord Jesus as his Savior, Lord. It's interesting how the Spirit of God blows, isn't it? In ways that we would never think of. What Christopher Pike's father searched for, he never found. And what Christopher didn't know he needed was graciously given by the Holy Spirit of God blowing on the University of California campus that day Ted Wise was preaching. In closing, let me just draw your attention to verses that we're going to get to in, in the Gospel of John pretty soon. Just look down to verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we've seen. And he says, you do not receive our testimony. It's a sad verse, really, but here's what I want you to see. Those who have been born again are witnesses to what God has done in our life. We bear witness to what we've seen. We, we bear witness to what we, has happened to us. We bear witness to, to the fact that our lives have changed. Sinclair Ferguson tells a story of a man that went to church a long time before he was a believer. Sat in the pews Sunday after Sunday. He wasn't a, a believer. And then one day he, he came to Christ. And, and a few weeks after he came to Christ, he went to the, he went to the, the pastor and, and he said to the pastor, you know, something in church has changed. The, the music has gotten better the last few weeks. The hymns speak to my heart. The sermons are fresh. They, they really mean a lot to me. The experience of church totally changed for him. And of course, it, it wasn't the fact that the church service changed. It was that this man had been born again. The, the breath of, of God's life had been breathed into him. He saw things differently. And what happened in, in the church spoke to him in a way that, that just couldn't have before. This man was a, a witness to what God has done in his life. He had a first-hand account of being born again. Spirit of God giving him a, a new and divine life. I like how Jesus speaks of, of bearing witness, uh, of telling what one has seen. You know, for the, the Christian, when we start to, to grasp the, the, the gravity of our own situation, of, of where we were, of what it means to be spiritually dead. Just like the, the verses that, that Katie read this morning before we started in Ephesians chapter 2. We were here. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. We start recognizing that the spiritual death and how the flesh ruled in us, all the while we were objects of God's wrath. When we contemplate what God has done for us, that we've been given new life that was totally undeserved, then we too turn and, and bear witness to others about what we've experienced. And the sad part in all of this, I think, is that we as Christians often need to be reminded of how great the grace of God has been in our lives. We constantly need to be reminded of where we were and what God has done. We need to be reminded that the Spirit of God has given us new life. And because of Him, we are everything for us is, is being seen is, is different. 
And the more we're reminded of these things, the more we delight in the God of our salvation, the more we long to please him in the way that we live out our lives, and the more we naturally bear witness to him and, and tell others what he has done for us. Ted Wise is a, a footnote in the Christopher Pike story. He was sharing his story. He was bearing witness to what God has done in his life. He was a faithful witness. You know, I, I pray that, that we're footnotes in countless people's spiritual journeys because of, because of what God has done in our lives, that we too are bearing faithful witness that we know and we understand what God has done for us and we tell others that it would just be natural, that the Spirit would, would blow where the Spirit wills, that the Spirit would, would accomplish what the Spirit desires to, to accomplish in the lives of, of so many people and that, that God would, would take and, and use us just as footnotes in the lives of countless people along the way. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.